0: I had a teacher in high school whose name was Mrs. Black, and true to her name, Mrs. Black always wore black clothes, and she had black hair. So it was very easy to remember her name, but the most memorable thing about Mrs. Black was uh, her habit of leaving the classroom, usually 10 or 15 minutes after we started. She would give us some instruction, maybe some busy work, and then she'd leave. She would be gone for 15 minutes and she would always return smelling strongly of smoke and perfume together when she got back to the class. Uh, As a class, then we began to anticipate this pattern. We knew it was going to happen on a regular basis. And so one day she left the room and somebody hatched a plan. Somebody said, what would happen if when Mrs. Black returned, we were all gone? And the plan began to build in momentum and it began to take shape. And eventually, you know, 25 kids in the class and we were all ready to bolt. I don't know where we planned to go exactly, but we were going to be gone when she returned. And so we began to get up and make our way toward the door. And we turned around and there was one kid. I still remember his name. His name was Chet. Chet was still seated. And we said, uh, come on, Chet, we're ready to go. And he said, no, I'm not going. And if you can imagine this scene uh, of 25, 16-year-old kids all began to pressure Chet. Come on, man, let's go. It's not that big a deal. Let's do this. This is going to be great. But we can't do it without you, buddy. We need you on our team. And Chet, to my knowledge, was not Lutheran, but there he stood like Luther, unwilling to budge unwilling to recant, he would not move. He said, I will not go, this is not right. Uh, For the next couple of minutes, we pushed and we tried everything we could do to get him to go with us, but he would not. And so our plan fell apart. We decided we could not leave the room if one person was gonna stay and tell Mrs. Black what was going on. So we all sat down and I don't believe she ever was the wiser to this plan that we had hatched. And uh, in the intervening years, I've often thought, what sort of belief system drove Chet's actions? What gave him the courage to sit there like that when all of his peers, literally all of his peers in the room, were pushing him to do something different? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know him that well. It may have been he was really afraid of his parents. It may have been that he was really afraid of Mrs. Black for some reason. Maybe she knew something about Chet that he didn't want to come to light Maybe there was a deep-seated religious conviction behind his stand. I really don't know, but I do know this. There was something that he valued and feared more than us that kept him sitting in the seat. There was some powerful motivator inside him that gave him the courage to say no when he was pressured to do something wrong. All of us on some level, like to believe that we are rugged individuals, that we stand apart from the crowd, that we are going to be the one to do what is different when everybody else does something wrong. The reality of our lives, though, is that we like to fit in. We like to be a part of the crowd. None of us wants to draw negative attention for standing for values distinct from those around us. Nobody wants to be persecuted. And so we try to fit in. And one of the questions that I always have when I think of great men and women from history who have stood for the name of Jesus in the face of opposition, I always wonder, how did they do that? Because I like to fit in. I don't like to attract notice, especially negative notice. Many of you have probably read the book The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom beautiful story about a Dutch family living in Holland during World War II. And unlike all of those around them who sort of went along to get along, the Ten Boom family decided to protect and hide the Jews who were under persecution from the Nazis. And so they created a little room, a little secret room in their home where they hid these Jews. And, and they did this for weeks and months until they were finally caught. And the Tin Booms are caught and they were arrested and they went to a prison camp. But before they were imprisoned, there's an unbelievable scene in the story where Caspar Tinboom, the 70 something year old patriarch of this family, is told by the Nazi leadership Look, old man, we don't want to put an old guy like you in prison. We want to let you go home to your family, to die in your own bed, not in some prison camp. Let, let us send you home. Just promise us that you won't keep up what you've been doing. And he looked at them and he said this, if I go home today, tomorrow I will open my door to anyone who asks for help. And so they sent him to the prison camp. And I read stories like that and wonder, what gives a man that courage? We're going to see a story like that from Daniel 3 this morning. Believe we have the wrong slides up there. (laughs) It's all right, I can do last week again if we need. We're going to see that story from Daniel 3 this morning. And uh, Daniel 3, uh, you may be familiar, is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends who came with him from Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and took some of the young noblemen over into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, essentially conquered large portions of the known world. And when he did so, the first thing he did in 605 BC is he took some of the nobles, some of the leaders of the Jews and he carried them off to Babylon. And his goal was to re-assimilate these men into the culture of Babylon. He wanted to change their belief system. He wanted to change their culture, change their actions and the way that they thought. And along with Daniel came these three guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whose names he changed. We'll talk about that in a bit. But here you have these three young men who are faced with a terrible dilemma. And the dilemma is you either bow down to the gods of Babylon or you die. And we read this story, and the question that emerged as I read it is, what gave them the courage to stand for their faith in God when everybody else hit the dirt and bowed down to an idol? And as you look at the story, here's what you see. It's not that these guys had some sort of unique courage, primarily. It's that they had faith in the character of God. See, what drove them to stand firm when everybody else was not was this. God's character empowered their courage. God's character empowered their courage. They had a firm conviction in the power of God that he was sovereign even over Nebuchadnezzar, even over Babylon, even over all the nations, and that he loved them. God shows up in this passage. We're talking about, remember, theophanies, where men and women see God's presence in some miraculous, visible, audible way. So God shows up in this passage, but even before we see God in the passage, these guys trusted he was there because he loved them. And so God's character empowered their courage. And I think that that's instructional for those of us who look at the scripture, those of us who say, what I want to do with my life is worship and obey God alone. The odds are good that most of us are never going to face the kind of choice that they faced. Although if you read the news, you know that men and women around the world face this type of choice even today to deny the name of their savior or die. And what gave them the courage is to say, God is powerful over history. God is powerful over Kings and God is with me. See an understanding of both of those aspects of his character coming together is what empowered their courage. And so these three men stand, we're going to talk through Daniel three this morning. And as we see how it plays out, what you'll see is that they are firm in their stance to worship God alone, but they're also gracious. In our culture here, we may not face the choice that they face. I think often the pressure to conform happens in subtler ways. Because we live in a culture generally that reveres the self and the individual and the individual's right to believe to say, to do whatever he or she pleases. And so it's okay to worship Jesus as long as you don't say he's better than someone else's belief system. As long as you don't say that Jesus is greater than Mohammed or Buddha. As long as you don't say that obedience to Jesus is greater than pursuing your own sexual belief system. As long as you don't say that Jesus is greater and pursuing pride, money, prestige, whatever it may be. And so it's okay to talk about God. Where it gets sticky is when you say, Jesus alone. Which, by the way, was the case with these three men as well. In most of the ancient world, they were okay with you worshiping Yahweh. Where it got sticky was if you said, I worship only Yahweh. And these guys have to draw deep, from this reservoir of faith in God's character to stand when everybody else bows down. Let's look at Daniel chapter three, starting in verse one. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width, 60 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire." Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So here's the setup that we begin with. It's very simple. You bow down or you die. Now we need to get a little bit into what's going on. Why does Nebuchadnezzar do this? He sets up this golden statue, 60 cubits, about 90 feet tall. And 90 feet wide, so I don't understand what kind of statue this is, on some sort of extremely wide base, on a, in a meadow, it is 90 feet tall. And he says this, listen, I'm going to set up this statue, I'm going to call everybody in the kingdom who has any sort of leadership ability or position, all of the governors, prefects, satraps, everybody who leads other people, when you hear the music, when you start hearing that song, please bow down, right? You are supposed to fall on your face and bow down before this statue. And by the way, if you do not, see that furnace over there? It's roaring right now. We're going to pick you up and we'll toss you in. So the music starts to play. The herald says, hey, everybody, you hear all the instruments, all the sounds. It says, everybody hits the dirt. And you can't blame them. They see the fire. Everybody sees the fire. Now, why does Nebuchadnezzar do this? This is a way for Nebuchadnezzar to consolidate his power, particularly in his feelings of insecurity. See, in order to really get this, you you almost have to look back at Daniel 2. And if you remember in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream and nobody's able to interpret the dream. None of his wise men are able to interpret the dream except for who? Daniel. They call Daniel in and Daniel says, hey, here's your dream. You saw what? A statue. Head of the statue is gold, the chest of the statue is silver, the torso is bronze, the legs are made of iron, and then the feet are mixed of iron and clay. And Daniel says, that statue represents all of these worldly kingdoms. And guess what? Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is the head. It's the gold one. And then, you know what you saw, king? You saw a giant rock come and smash them all. That rock is God. Your kingdom and all of the ones that follow, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans... God's going to smash him and set up his own king. Now, at the time, Nebuchadnezzar says, that that was my dream. And that's an amazing interpretation. Daniel's God is great. One chapter later, he says, but just to consolidate my power, I'm going to build my own little statue. It's all made of gold. And everybody's going to bow down. We don't know what the statue was. Uh, Some people think maybe it was a statue of the king himself. It doesn't really tell us in Daniel 3. It it probably was a statue of one of the Babylonian gods, Marduk or Bel or one of these gods. And he says, you will bow down. And by worshiping the gods of the king, you are swearing allegiance to the king. And so if you don't do that, this is considered an act of rebellion and defiance. It is designed to produce conformity. Nebuchadnezzar understands that if every Everybody is together and you look around and you see everybody else bow down and you look over and you see what the consequences will be. If you don't do it, you're going to bow down. It's designed to produce conformity. Imagine this fall that you were to walk into Kyle Field and go sit in the student section wearing a burnt orange t-shirt and you keep your hat on during all of the yells. What would happen to you? Persecution, right? I've seen it happen. I've heard the yells. I have seen people reach over and flip the hat off a guy who wouldn't take it off of his head. Because the environment produces conformity. Nebuchadnezzar understands this in his own context. But the astute Jewish reader Also knows that we have a a problem because if these Jewish men and women bow down to the statue, they are violating the first two of the Ten Commandments, right? Number one, don't have any gods before God. Number two, don't set up any idols and bow down to them. So these guys are being called to violate what they see and what is the very heart of their faith in God, which is you only worship him. You only worship God and you don't set up an image and bow down. Worshiping idols was the reason, by the way, that these people had been exiled in the first place. For hundreds of years, the Jews in The promised land had worshipped idols and worshipped idols and worshipped idols. The kings and the leaders and all the people. And so God had said for years, if that happens, you will be exiled out of the land. And now it has happened. And these men are in this foreign land facing immense pressure. And yet, if you've read Daniel 1 and 2, you also know that they have a center, these men. And they are centered around the power of God and the reality of the one God. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego primarily. Their original names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hananiah. Hananiah, and I'm going to have to look to remember what this means. God is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah means God has helped. When they get there immediately, Nebuchadnezzar changes their name. Shadrach means command of the moon God. Meshach means who is like Aku Echu. is one of the Babylonian gods. Abednego means servant of Nebo. And you see what he's trying to do. He tries to change their identity. And then he says, you're going to eat this food that's been sacrificed to idols, the meat that we eat here. And right away, Daniel and his friends take a stand in Daniel one, and they say, we're not going to eat that food. And they don't. And God blessed that choice. And then again here in Daniel 3, they face another choice. And by the way, Daniel's going to face a very similar choice later on in the book. Will you disobey God and go to your death? Or will you disobey God and stay alive? Or will you obey him and worship him and go to your death? Will these men stick to their understanding of who God is and worship him alone? Like I said, this is a choice that those who trust in the one true God have often faced. It's not always so stark. In some instances, throughout the centuries, Christians have faced death for standing for Jesus. In other instances, making that choice to say, I worship Jesus alone, costs in other ways. You see hints of that as you read the book of 1 Peter when it seems that the men and women are enduring trials that might include loss of property, loss of prestige, loss of social status, loss of money, in some instances, loss of family. It may be for you and me, it's as simple as loss of respect at your workplace. Maybe you work in an academic environment that is hostile to the scripture, and so it costs. And these men face this choice. Will we worship God and endure the cost of worshiping him if you stand for Christ alone? That's a choice that Paul says to Timothy, everybody's going to face. Everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so they face this choice. And then we see their response. They say, we, we will not bow. Look at verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Notice that he keeps using the Babylonian names. That you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, etc., etc., fall down, worship the image I have made very well. But if you don't worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer. Concerning this matter, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, the Chaldean wise men, that's who these Chaldeans are. They're like Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian wise men who may have still been a little bit upset that they couldn't interpret his dream in Daniel 2. They look for an opportunity to take revenge and they come before the king and they say, hey, here are these guys, these Jewish men who will not bow down. And you explicitly said if they would not bow down, they're going to go to the fire. So Nebuchadnezzar calls them in and he says, look, I'm going to give you guys a chance. If you're ready to bow down, bow down. If not, you're going to go into the fire. He's furious, it says. He's in a rage. And yet he pauses and says, look, I'll give you another chance shot. And then he says the words that I think seal the end of this story. What God is there who can deliver you from my hand? Now Nebuchadnezzar takes this from a human battle to a divine one. No longer are his fists cocked toward these three men, but now his fist is raised at heaven. And so I love their response. And they say, King Uh, We don't need to give you an answer about that. You can pick a fight with God. Fine. God will answer you. Our God can, and they say he will, deliver us. But guess what? Even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do what you want us to do. And I love this combination that they have of being gracious, but also being firm. Notice that they did not write a letter and say, King, we don't respect you or King, we will not bow down. They don't stand up and shout about the fact that they are worshiping God alone. Somebody else accuses them. They are never disrespectful to the King. And yet at the same time, they say your authority ends before we deny our worship of God. Your authority only goes so far. And that's because they have two beliefs about God that we mentioned earlier that propel them. His power and his love. They understand that God is in charge even of Nebuchadnezzar. They understand that they are in Babylon ultimately because of God's hand. They know the history of Israel. They saw what God did to Egypt. They saw what God did to the Canaanites. They have seen through the years how God preserved his people. Even at times when they were disobedient. And they know this God of power. And they know the dream, probably, that Nebuchadnezzar had, by the way. That his God will establish his king. And Nebi, it's not you, right? And they also know his love. We haven't yet seen the presence of God in this story, but they know he's there. They know he's there. So they say, even if we die, he's still the only God. Even if he doesn't deliver us, he's still the only one worthy of worship. Why? Because what you've done, Nebuchadnezzar, is you've built a golden statue to your God And that statue is going to crumble and fall and disappear. Your God has no power and no love because he's not real. Ours is, even if he lets us die. So we're going to line up with Yahweh. Because they know God is stronger, because they know God loves them, they have the strength to stand. I'll never forget when I was a child, Uh, one of the houses we lived in for a while when I was uh, late elementary school, early junior high, had a swimming pool in the backyard. And my job with this swimming pool was to go out and empty the skimmers every night, the little skimmers that would collect the dirt and the leaves and everything. I just had to pull out this little basket, dump it out in the dirt. Pretty easy job, but here's the deal. One of the skimmers was on the far side of the yard and in between the house and that skimmer was this huge evergreen tree that blocked your view from the house. And I don't know why, but I developed this fear of going around behind that tree at night because nobody could see me and I would have nightmares about this chore that I was out there emptying it and a man would leap over the fence and throw me in the pool and drown me. And it sounds a little funny now that the dreams were anything, but I would wake up in a cold sweat. I, I would dream that I walked out the back door and a man would emerge from the pool and drag me under while I was trying to empty those skimmers, I I really was terrified. So every night I would try to run out there as quickly as I could, empty it out, run back to the house. But there were some nights that the fear was so overwhelming that I would go to my dad and I'd say, dad, can you come outside with me while I do this chore? And being a parent now, I'm sure he was thinking this is kind of a ridiculous thing, right? And yet he would get up and he would walk out the back door and he would stand where he could see me watch me do the chore and then go back in now here's what's fascinating to me now about that is the the, the actuality of danger in the backyard was still there i suppose right although it was primarily imagined danger if there was any danger the circumstances didn't change it was still dark it was still far away from the house somebody still i suppose with extremely good legs could have leapt over the fence and got me right All of the danger that was there before was still there. What was different? Why did I feel better? It's because at that age, I trusted that my dad cared about me. And I had this belief, like many of us do, that dad could beat up anybody who came over the fence. I imagined that maybe dad knew karate. Dad had some sort of power that I didn't have. So I wasn't afraid. Because I knew he loved me. And I knew he was strong. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. They center their trust in a God that they believe is stronger than Nebuchadnezzar and who's right there with them. That is the basis for worshiping God only in the middle of a culture that constantly pressures us to worship other things. And I look at their example and I think for many of us, we have one of two reactions when we are pressured by our world. One reaction is anger. We get angry because we're afraid. So we are angry at our governmental leaders or we are angry at Hollywood or we are angry at whoever and we lash out and we think I need to beat them up or I need to write in all caps on Facebook because that'll stop them, right? (laughs) Or the other reaction is, you know what? I'm just going to blend in. These three men avoid either error. They are gracious, they are kind, but they are steadfast. They don't have to prove a point, and they don't have to run away because God's there with them. And what we find then as we continue in the passage is this, they they're tossed into the fire, but watch what happens. As they experienced the punishment that Nebuchadnezzar had promised. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. It's what we call overkill. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men, loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar gets very angry to the point where he heats up this furnace seven times hotter than usual. There was probably one opening, one aperture in this furnace where they could use some bellows and heat it up really hot, and then there was another opening through which they would throw fuel, in this case, the people. It gets so hot, of course, that the men who even draw near enough to throw them in are incinerated and die. He throws them in with all of their clothes, on them and he ties them up. All of that's going to be significant later on in the passage. He tosses them in so they can't hop out. Not that they could if they died. And he throws them in with all of their clothes and then he sits back and he waits. And I love the next scene. It says he gets up and he's astounded and he turns to these yes men, these officials who are next to him. And he says, uh, didn't we throw three people in there? And you can see kind of their, their response is one of, I need to give the right answer here, right? absolutely, you are an amazing counter, O King, right? <laughs> there were, there were one, two, three, certainly, surely there were three, way to go, right? And then he goes, but I see four. And I just saw his envision these guys going, what did we do, right? What? <laughs> four. And they're walking around and they're unharmed and one looks like a son of the gods, God shows up in the fire. Again, we don't know specifically, is this the angel of the Lord, perhaps? The same angel that appeared to Moses, to Gideon, to Abraham? Uh, Perhaps this is Jesus himself. All we know is that the visible presence of God is there with them in the flames. And Nebuchadnezzar is astonished. I've often wondered, though, why didn't God show up five minutes earlier? Why wait until that moment when they're tossed into the fire? In other words, why didn't God show up just a couple minutes earlier with like a club and just knock out Nebuchadnezzar and say, come on, guys, let's go. Right. It would have been less stressful, wouldn't it? Why did he allow them to get tied up with all their clothes, thrown into the fire, see these other guys die? Why is it? Well, as you walk through the scripture, it's really amazing to see God has a little bit of a flair for the dramatic. And here's what I mean. Go back and think about the Israelites leaving Egypt and what happens. They leave Egypt and they find themselves on the shore of the sea with Pharaoh's army right behind them. And then they stand and they freak out and they're worried and here comes the army. And then God says, oh, Moses, try this. Put your staff over the water and boom, it opens up and they walk through. And he waits until they are between a rock and a hard place. Will you trust me? And I think there are times that God allows the situation to come to a place where the only way he can, it can be redeemed is if he does it. And he wants Nebuchadnezzar and he wants these Hebrew men to see that even when you're in the fire, I can pull you out. Even when it's a really hot one. I will confess to you that this past weekend I went and watched all of the original Karate Kid movies again. Uh, I wish I had not watched the third one, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) The first one is this extremely well-done movie about an underdog, right? Daniel LaRusso, he doesn't really know a lot of karate at the beginning, but by the end, he comes back and he defeats the bully who is after him, and he wins this tournament, and it's just this wonderful moment of triumph. But the reason the moment of triumph is so sweet is why? Because he's so small and wimpy. And every day at the beginning of this movie, he's just—he's getting pummeled, Right? And even in the tournament, when it gets as bad as it could possibly get, right? His, his legs are hurting, he's taking a beating, he's bleeding. That adds to the triumph at the end. And what we see here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the fact that God allows this situation to go where it goes, vindicates his glory all the more when he pulls them out. Rich Mullins, who was one of my favorite musicians, his line... From one of his songs says this, "You'll meet him in the fire a long time before you meet him in the sky. But where you are is where he promised to be, from the ends of the world to every point of need. We live in the midst of fire. We live in the midst of a world that is hostile to Jesus Christ. And that's just the truth. It's not merely this country, it's our world. Look around, read the news, see what is happening. It has been this way from the beginning. And yet God is arranging history to set up his king. So you you don't have to be afraid of the kingdoms of this world, of men and women who persecute because of Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear because he is with us even in the midst of the fire. That's how we have boldness and courage. God is in control. So I've watched the news unfolding in Iraq over the past week or so and seen how Christians are facing serious persecution. It's driven me to this place of prayer that they and we would recognize that God is in control of history. You need to understand that in the grand scheme of what God is doing, those who set themselves opposed to his plans will lose. And he will win. Because the rock is coming that will crush every kingdom. Jesus will return on a white horse and he will set up his kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. And now he extends an invitation driven from his love to everybody in the world to hear that he died for sin and rose again so that everybody has the opportunity to join him in that kingdom. And so he is patient, but he is not powerless and he's not blind. He sees everything that's happening. And what we see at the end of this story ultimately is the the reward that happens as a result of their faithfulness. Verses 26 to 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to those men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. He did like violence, by the way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. They come out of the fire. And I love this. It's not only that they're alive. They don't even smell like smoke. And the only thing that burned up were the ropes he used to tie them up. And God shows this pagan king and these three men. I'm stronger. And I'm here. And I think the Hebrews would have had this temptation to believe that if they were separated from the temple, far away from home, God could not find them. It's the mistake Jonah made, and it's an easy one to make. But he's there. And the main point at the end of this tale is not primarily that they were saved, although that vindicates God's power. But remember what they'd said, even if He doesn't deliver us. We're not going to bow down to your God because he's still God. Even if we die, he's still God. And they believed in resurrection. In fact, Daniel is the first of the prophets in the Old Testament to talk explicitly about the future resurrection of the saints in Daniel 12. And they knew that God is powerful even over death over every king, over every kingdom. That power and love meets most fully in the person of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? That in his love, he died for you and me, for our sin. And in the power of God and his spirit, he rose again. So all who place their faith in him can have eternal life. And for those who do, we don't have to fear the world around us. We don't have to fear those who are opposed to God's plans, we don't have to fear the loss of prestige or of money or of the things we want to do. because we know a God who is powerful and who is here and loves us. This week, here's my encouragement is this. Remember, God's character, knowing God's character, empowers true courage. And then this week, each day, read Romans 8:35 to 39 remind ourselves of God's love and power. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor rulers nor angels nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord when you go to work tomorrow when you engage with your family when you engage with a world that is hostile to him he is stronger and he loves you and he's there if you would pray with me and then Zach has a couple of closing applications and opportunities Father we're grateful so much that we know you're with us And you've demonstrated your power and love through the death and resurrection of your son. And we know he is coming back. So we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to worry. We don't have to be angry or fearful. And we don't have to run away. But we can boldly and confidently stand worshiping you. Even in the midst of a hostile world. Even in the midst of a world that says it's okay To say Jesus as long as you don't worship him alone. Father, I pray we would. Along with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I pray we would know our God. And trust him. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.